going to read from 1 Samuel 1 to 20. 1 Samuel 1, 1 to 20. And I'm going to try to do it without too many mistakes. There was a certain man from Rathiam, a subheight from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Eliana, son of Jerome, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zup, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah, and the other was Peniah. Peniana had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hopnan and Phineas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Echanan to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peniana and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and could not eat. Her husband, Elian, Alcahan, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you weep? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? And I will let Pastor Dave carry on with the rest. Before we, before we get into the text in your bulletin, we have uh, some leftovers from uh, previous messages that I have to, I, I thought I might as well give them to you. My kids hate leftovers. I love leftovers. These are leftovers from other sermons. Uh, the first one is from Funeral on Tuesday. And uh, the Funeral on Tuesday, the first uh, point of the first point of the message was, how do we know what happens when we die? And where do we go? How do we know that? A doctor in New York has uh, devised an experiment. And uh, he realizes that there's some kind of consciousness after uh, there is no brain activity and after the heart has stopped beating. There seems to be about three minutes of some kind of consciousness. And anyways, he's, he's decided to have an experiment. And so he wants 1,500 subjects whereby when someone goes into cardiac arrest, those who respond to the cardiac arrest will come and we'll hook up oxygen monitor and an EEG and uh, also put on a pair of headphones. And the, on the headphones will be a series of words and sounds and then also to put on a, on a kind of light that will show different kinds of lights. And uh, then after the cardiac arrest and the person comes out of it, he then wants to ask them, what sounds do you remember? What kind of flashing lights do you remember seeing? And I thought, if I'm having a cardiac arrest, I don't want my responder worrying about whether the headphones are on right or whether they've hooked up the strobe light the right way. All of this to find out what it happens uh, when, you, when you die. Uh, the scriptures, by the way, I don't know what happens when you die. 
because I don't have any first-hand information. But we have someone who does, and we know someone who does. That's Jesus Christ. And the scriptures are quite clear on how he knows. And John talks about it a number of times in his, in his gospel. He says these kind of things. Jesus said to the Nicodemus, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus says, I've come from heaven. Or I also wrote down these passages, John 1.14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, he has an existence prior to when he became a human being. Or John 1.18. No one knows the Father except the Son. Uh, John 17. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. How do we know what happens when we die? Well, here's how we know. Jesus came from heaven. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. He ascended to heaven. And he has spoken since he has sent been to heaven. Spoken to uh, John and to Paul. That's how we know. We know about heaven. We know about death. We know about resurrection because Jesus Christ knows all of those things. Well, that's leftover number one. Leftover number two. This is from Mother's Day. By the way, all, all the rest of these come from Mother's Day. A woman by the name of Asia Bibby. She's been in the news a lot. And she's from Pakistan. Peter, thank you for sending me emails uh, updating me about her situation. I've been reading about her for years in Christianity Today. Asia Bibby in 2010, I think 2010, was picking berries with a couple of other women from her village. And uh, when she was picking berries, she brought them some water. However, she drank out of the water that she brought to them. And because she is a Christian and she is a lower caste, they were deeply offended. And uh, afterwards accused her of blasphemy, of saying things against the Prophet Muhammad. She was then arrested, put on trial, 2010, and condemned to be killed. And she has been waiting for that sentence to be carried out. 2018, the Supreme Court of Pakistan heard her case and felt there was no evidence strong enough to convict her. Testimony was not uh, coherent and not, uh, not the same. And so they vacated the case. The governor of Punjab, a Muslim, was killed for defending her. The Christian, uh, the Pakistani prime, no, the Pakistani minister in charge of Christian relations, also a Christian, he was killed for defending her. There has a bounty on her head of 500,000 rupees. Finally, this year, May of 2019, the Canadian government brought her to Canada to join her two children. 
Thank you, Canadians. And thank you, Prime Minister Trudeau, who met with her. They are now in hiding because a Canadian man has vowed that he will kill her. I thought, wow. Here's a mother of two girls. Her two girls are with her here in Canada and her husband. A mother of two girls willing to stand up for her convictions, the only Christian family in the village, and unwilling to convert to Islam, and that was the major problem. Leftover number three. This is also from Mother's Day. This is the problem with abortion laws. Let me read what I've written here first. Sad to think that the most dangerous place in the world for an unborn baby is the womb of its mother. Completely against nature shows our depravity that the most dangerous person for an unborn baby is the baby's mother. In preparation for Mother's Day last week, I was reading the book of Deuteronomy. God prohibits and condemns the sacrificing of children. And in fact, there are 18 scriptures about the sacrifice of children. One of the Psalms even has it as part of a song. The Canaanites and the Palestinians Palestinians practiced child sacrifice. The Phoenicians practiced child sacrifice. It was one of the reasons that God was giving Israel their land. But eventually, Israel would adopt those same practices, worship those same gods, and also practice child sacrifice. And some of the kings of Judah would do the same thing. And I asked myself, why would somebody sacrifice their children? The answer is easy. You sacrifice your children because you think you will have a better life because you sacrifice your child. That's the same reason why we abort babies. We abort babies so that we can have a better life. When Christianity came to the Greek and the Roman world in the first century, Greeks and Romans practiced infanticide. Either abortion or infanticide was practiced by the Greeks and Romans, usually killing a baby girl. In fact, they've done studies where they have looked at 600 Roman families. And out of 600 Roman wealthy families, only six of them had more than one girl because girls weren't wanted. And the, and the father had complete control over whether the child would live. Until Christianity came. And Christian families went against the norm. And they can tell this by looking at inscriptions because Christian families would have many girl children and not just one. The difference? Christianity makes the difference. And we need God to turn the hearts of mothers to their children. And that's where it's got to start. Uh, that's leftover number three. Okay, leftover number four is the text before you. And uh, let, me, let me start reading again. Thank you, Jim, for trying to read those names. I pronounce them a little differently than Jim. There was a certain man from Ramatham, a Zuphite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jer Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuph, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah, the other Panina. Panina had children. Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship, to sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. 
Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina, to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her. And the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Notice these things from the text. This is during the days of the judges, sometime between 1400 B.C. and 1100. An ancient story. Forty years before Israel ever has a king. And Elkanah has two wives. A polyamorous relationship is the word they use today. Today, when we use the word polyamory, we mean a relationship between more than two people, at least three, and today polyamory means it is consensual. We don't know if that's the case with Elkanah and his two wives. The law of God allows such marriages to exist. But God's design for relationships and marriages is that no such marriages exist. His design is one woman and one man. I have four scriptural arguments for that. First of all, every multiple wife family in the scriptures is portrayed negatively, as is this one. There is bitterness, rivalry, and there is a lack of love. Now, I don't know if Tom meant to say this, but I'll say it. Um, it's hard to just have one spouse and give enough time, attention, and love for one. That's a full-time job. How do you do that for two? Of course it's not going to work. Secondly, when Jesus discusses marriage, he refers back to Genesis 1 and 2, that divorcing one wife and marrying another is adultery because God's design is one woman and one man. That's why it says in Genesis chapter 2, the Lord said, It's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him, or a helper equal to him. Exactly what he needs. Exactly on his level. That's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. And they become one flesh. How many fleshes? One flesh. Two become one flesh. When you have three, you have two fleshes. Not God's design. It doesn't work. In fact, my own thinking is that when you go out and have sex with someone who is not your wife, you create a one-flesh relationship somewhere else, and it damages the one-flesh relationship you have with your wife. Finally, the scriptures tell us that pastors and elders in a church are to be one, a one-woman man. King James, the husband of one wife. Notice in the text that Elkanah loved Hannah more. Penina had all the kids. And every year when they went to the tabernacle to worship God, I would suppose they're going for the Passover and uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And every year they went, they would have a big meal. And they would give out the pieces of meat. And Hannah always got twice as much as everyone else. Now in my notes, I put down that Panina got hamburger 
and round steaks. And Hannah got prime rib, a porterhouse, and filet mignon without the bacon wrapped around it. And uh, this caused problems. And so every year when they went to worship, it was just bitterness and fighting. Because the one wife would always provoke the other one and would be irritated how she's being favored. What was supposed to be the best day of the year, the most religious day of the year, and the most holy day of the year, for, for Hannah was the most distressing. And she would end up weeping and not being able to eat. And the text says that the other wife actually calls her her enemy or her adversary or her rival. And she would rub it in and torment her. And poor Elkanah, he knew his wife was upset and he wanted to help. And wives, please forgive us husbands. Sometimes we can be obtuse. Because he says, don't I mean more to you than ten sons? You don't need children, you got me. <laughs> Come on, what else, what else could be better in life? You've got me as your husband. Uh, that's never the answer. So notice what happens. Once when they had finished eating and drinking, obviously she's upset. Hannah stood up. Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. She made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. No razor will ever be used on his head. By the way, a Nazarite vow. And this is a Nazarite who kept the vow, different from Samson. He will never cut his hair his entire life. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart. Her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I'm a woman who is deeply troubled. I've not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. And Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of four quick things. Number one, God's people will have misery, deep anguish, bitter weeping, and be deeply troubled. You will have it in your life. What will you do? Pray out your trouble. Pray out your trouble. The Lord Almighty can do anything. And so she makes a vow to give the answer of her prayer completely to the Lord. An amazing vow. Unusual. To take a small child and give him completely to the Lord. To live there. To be raised there. And to serve the Lord all his life. There will be times when your motives will be misread just like Hannah's motives. And her behavior is misread. Especially if you're on fire for God, your motive will be misread. Eli pronounces a blessing on the prayer. Hannah says, may your servant find favor in your eyes since she went her way and ate something. Her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they rose and worshiped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah. The Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. Uh, thank you, Samuel, for saying amen. Ask, ask in Hebrew is Sha'al, and uh, here, Shammah, or Shamu. 
after pouring out your soul, after praying, leave the problem with the Lord. Leave it with the Lord. Eat, smile, worship. That's what, she, that's what Hannah did. And then she names him Samuel. Samuel. God hears. One of the most famous verses in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 6. We call it the Shema of Israel. Shema means here. It starts out, Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God is one. The Shema, why? Hear, O Israel. God hears. And this morning, if you have a problem, God hears. Difficulty, God hears. Sin in your life that you're sorry for, God hears. Something in the past, troubling, where you did something wrong, God hears. A dream that seems to be broken, like Hannah, God hears. Let's pour out our prayers to him and ask him for help, especially mothers. Especially mothers. At the, after the funeral on Tuesday for Ray Cressman, Tim and Reed said to, uh, said to me, we're going to miss the prayers of our mother. After all, who's going to pray for you like your mother prays for you? Maybe your dad. <laughs> Other than that, who else? So moms, let's be women of prayer because God hears.